We're going through the Bible in 99 weeks. This is week 43. We're almost halfway home. And I think the Indians are fixing to go on the war path over here. <laughs> oh no, that's just the middle schoolers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us, and we thank you for this wonderful book that we hold in our hand. Lord, we know it's not just any book. We know it's your book. It's your word. Inspired, preserved, transmitted to us. Help us to read it tonight and understand it and apply it to our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, we move from the poets to the prophets. We move into a new section of Scripture known as the prophetical books, the first of that section being the book of Isaiah. The prophets themselves were men with spiritual calling, men with supernatural orders, men with steely courage. They were employed, inspired, and empowered by God. You see, a man became a priest through his ancestral heritage, but he became a prophet through God's specific appointment. The prophets were God's spokesmen. Isaiah has been called the prince of the prophets. Of all the prophets, his ministry was the longest, his style the most eloquent, his message the most sweeping than all the other prophets. He served through the reigns of four different kings. Isaiah was on prophetic duty for nearly 60 years. His watch lasted a whopping six decades from 740 B.C. until 680 B.C. Isaiah's writing style suggests that he was highly educated. According to tradition, he was a man of rank. He was a member of the royal family, a cousin of King Uzziah. The book of Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel. Some of the clearest, most spectacular messianic prophecies come from the pen of Isaiah. You remember at the synagogue in Nazareth, when Jesus explained his ministry, the intentions behind his coming... He opened the scroll to Isaiah 61 to give an explanation. Jesus' virgin birth, his sinless character, his life, miracles, his suffering on the cross, his death, his resurrection, and especially his second coming and future kingdom are all addressed by this prophet Isaiah. In fact, the word Isaiah means Jehovah is salvation. And his book proves that Jesus is indeed our Savior God's chosen. The book of Isaiah, interestingly enough, consists of 66 chapters. The first 39 chapters speak of God's law and his judgment on a people who violated that law. The last 27 chapters discuss God's grace and his plan to bring salvation to the nation that had been punished. Ironically, just as Isaiah contains 66 chapters, your Bible as a whole contains 66 books. And it too is divided along the same lines as the book of Isaiah. The Old Testament, remember, is made up of 39 books. And it speaks of God's law and the consequences that came upon Israel for violating God's law. The New Testament is made up of how many books? 27. And it speaks of God's grace. The plan of God to bring salvation to man. 
This is why Isaiah is sometimes called a mini Bible. It's a majestic book, and we'll be scanning it for the next three Sunday nights. The book begins, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And there's the span of his reign, four kings. Now, the days of Isaiah were troublesome times for Judah. Uzziah, remember, was a good and godly king. He reigned 52 years. His obedience to God created a stability that led the people into a season of prosperity. For the next 18 years, his son Jotham followed in his father's footsteps. But Jotham's successor, Ahaz, rebelled against God. His 19 years on the throne brought in a period of idolatry that set the nation up for judgment. And God's means of discipline came in the form of the Assyrian army. Today, even secular people recognize the biblical name Isaiah. Whereas, unless you are a scholar of ancient Eastern civilizations, names like Tiglath-Pelazir, Shalmanazir, Sargon, Sennacherib are all probably meaningless to you. And yet in the late 8th century BC, these were the names that dominated the world headlines. Unless you lived in Judah, the name Isaiah was the one name you probably didn't recognize. To us, Tiglath-Pelazir, Shalmanazar, Sargon, and Sennacherib sound like names from the latest wild video game. But these were the kings of Assyria during the days of Isaiah. These were the names that dominated the CNN headlines at the time. They were the leaders of a rising world power, the mighty, the ferocious Assyrian Empire. These ruthless Assyrian kings were bent on conquest. They desired expansion, world domination. And Isaiah lived his whole life in the shadow of this Assyrian threat. In 734 BC, early in Isaiah's ministry, Tiglath-Pelazir drove his army into North Israel, sacking its villages and deporting some of its people. Thirteen years later, in 722 BC, his successor Shalmanazar laid siege to Israel's capital, Samaria. His son, Sargon, finished the sacking of Samaria and took the inhabitants captive. A few years later, his successor, Sennacherib, drove his army further south and pillaged the northern villages of Judah, eventually surrounding the city of Jerusalem in the year 701 B.C. For 40 years, Isaiah had heard the Assyrian train rumbling down the tracks, getting closer and closer to a collision. His mission was to warn the people of Judah that unless they repent, they would suffer the same plight as their northern sister Israel that the Assyrians you know, would conquer them. Isaiah writes in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Following their exodus from Egypt, 
For 700 years, God cradled and nurtured and taught and disciplined and loved Israel with the patience and perseverance of a parent. And yet, they refused to respond to His instruction. As parents, we all know that feeling. When our kids disappoint us, when they go their own way, when they disobey and learn through the school of hard knocks. At times, God would punish his people with famine. At other times, he would reward them with prosperity. But neither really worked for long. They were perpetually rebellious. They broke his law and they pursued idols. That's why he says in verse 3, he bemoans this tendency. He says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not consider. Recently in the news, there was the report of how an Israeli policeman in the city of Haifa used this verse of the Bible, verse 3, to break up a burglary ring. You see, the thieves were ripping off stores and they were loading their loot on oxen in order to make their getaway. When one of the oxen was caught, the policeman decided to let him go hungry for a few days, then turn him loose. And just as Isaiah said, that ox returned to its master's crib and the crooks were arrested. You've heard the old metaphor, dumb as an ox. Well, apparently oxen are not always so dumb. Isaiah is saying that Israel was not even as smart as an ox. They were dumber than an ox. Apparently an ox knows where to turn when it gets hungry. It knows where to find the sustenance it needs. It knows the location of its master's crib. What about you? Are you dumber than an ox? Where do you turn when a spiritual hunger sets in? Do you take a pill? Do you go shopping and run up a bill? Do you take a drink? Do you go to the shrink? Hey, it doesn't take a very smart guy to figure out the place to turn is Jesus Christ. That He can meet our needs. He can satisfy our deepest longings. Even an ox returns to its owner's crib at the feet of Jesus. That's where we will all find feed. In verse 4, God says, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden or loaded down with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Guys, if you're not pursuing God tonight, you are going backwards. Philip Yancey makes an accurate observation about God's approach in the Old Testament. He writes, Jehovah does not think like a social worker. He behaves instead like a holy God trying desperately to communicate to cantankerous human beings. And here he vents his frustration. He gets upset. He's not always delicate. He's not always diplomatic. Here he says, alas, a sinful people loaded down with iniquity, a brood of evildoers. Notice in verse 4 the phrase, the Holy One of Israel. 
This is Isaiah's favorite title for God. It'll appear over and over in the book. In fact, it occurs 31 times in the Bible, but 26 of those times are in the book of Isaiah. See, in light of God's holiness, Israel's sin is that much more abominable. You see, Israel's sin had wounded her. But her wounds refused to heal because she continued to sin. Notice verse 6 of chapter 1. It says, wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. See, Israel rebels against God and gets taken to the woodshed. She is wounded for her sin, but then she suffers those same consequences over and over. In other words, she refuses to learn from her mistakes and it frustrates God. In verses 11 through 14, God has a beef with the people's beef. Their sorry attitude had rendered their sacrifices and their feasts meaningless. You see, their acts of worship were worthless to God. They would come and they would offer their lamb with an evil heart. And their rituals had become nothing more than a substitute for sincerity. And that's why God says in verse 13, bring no more futile sacrifices. People will use rituals as a substitute for sincerity. Well, oh, I'm, I gave my money. You know, I attended that service. God is after a pure heart. He wants a sincere attitude. Don't just come to church. Don't just raise your hands. Don't just sing your praise. Don't just pray a prayer. Drop an offering in the box. And then ignore the Lord the other seven days of the week and expect Him to be pleased. If that's your attitude, God's got a beef with your beef. Isaiah tells us in verse 15, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Come, lift your hands, spread them out, praise the Lord. Everybody thinks, oh, you're so spiritual. But if you're hiding sin in your heart, God will not hear your prayers. Here's how God detects a sincere heart. It's not beef, but belief. It's not just rituals and sacrifices, but it's sincerity. It's true devotion. Here's what real faith looks like. Look in verse 16. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. That's what real faith looks like. In verse 18, God makes us an offer. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. In other words, hey, let's settle this thing out of court. Let's not go before the judgment seat. Let's just settle this thing right now. I got a deal for you. Let's reason this out. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool if you are willing and obedient. Guys, if you are willing to let the Lord have his way in your life, he's willing to forgive. He's willing to forget. He's willing to cleanse the darkest stains, the deepest sins. He'll take a sin-stained heart and he'll wash it white as snow. What a wonderful promise. In the last part of chapter 1, 
Jerusalem is compared to a harlot. She's sold out to sin. She has gone to bed with idols. And God will purge her with the fires of judgment. Chapter 2 begins, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Understand, today is the day of man. Rebellious man is having his say, his way on planet earth. But the day will come when God will intervene. Jesus will return to this earth in order to judge the wicked. He will establish his kingdom. We are in the day of man. From heaven's perspective, these are what we might call the former days. But when Jesus returns, he will usher in what the Bible calls the day of the Lord or what here Isaiah refers to as the latter days. And that's Isaiah's focus here. In the latter days, God will bring a revival to Israel, a renewed hunger for God. When Jesus returns, he'll also bring peace to the earth. He'll bring goodwill toward men. Notice in verse 4 of chapter 2, there we find a famous verse. It says, He shall judge between the nations. When Jesus returns, He will rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There is a stone wall at the United Nations that bears this inscription. On this stone wall are engraved the second half of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and so forth. Ironically, the stone wall was a gift from the former Soviet Union. But it's no surprise that the godless atheistic Soviets left off the first half of verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. Understand, there can be no real peace without true justice and true righteousness. And righteousness won't come until Jesus comes. There will be no peace until the Prince of Peace comes and establishes it and judges the nations. Sadly, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6, could be written of the United States of America. It says, God will forsake us in the same way that He forsook Israel. He says, because you are filled with eastern ways, they are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Rather than remain committed to our Judeo-Christian heritage, our culture has elevated and embraced Eastern philosophy and New Age religion. We have turned to Eastern ways, just as Judah did. In former days, the preferred choice for stress relief in our nation was prayer. Today, it's yoga or transcendental meditation. In former days, ball players asked God to help them perform at their best. Today they breathe properly and they visualize success. Eastern ways. Even the secular vocabulary has changed. Biblical terms have been replaced with Eastern inferences. Bad circumstances are no longer described as God's test or God's judgment. Now they're called bad karma. 
The other day I heard a pastor, a pastor on the radio. He used the expression, in a former life. You know, I know that pastor, he doesn't believe in reincarnation, but his use of the phrase was evidence of how Eastern thought has permeated our culture. You see, biblical truth is no longer our bedrock. We've come full circle. Christianity liberated the world from Eastern idolatry and paganism. It spawned an incredible prosperity in Western culture. It was Christianity that gave birth to the prosperity we enjoy. But now, rather than thanking God for that prosperity, we are rejecting the truth and we are re-embracing the lie from which we were delivered. Be careful, lest you embrace these Eastern ways. Verse 7 further indicts us. It says, Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. But look at verse 8. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. Here is our post-modern Western culture in a nutshell. You know, we worship prosperity. Yes, there's endless treasures in our land, but then there are also endless an endless array of idols. Rather than serve the giver, we have worshipped the gifts. Verse 10 warns us of God's future judgment. Revelation 6 depicts cataclysmic events that will occur on the earth prior to the return of Jesus. And we're told in Revelation that the upheaval will be so severe that people will hide in holes and caves. And here Isaiah chimes in with Revelation and, and sounds the same warning, he says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty. I like what J. Vernon McGee once said, I don't know whether men were ever cavemen or not, but in the future, men will be living in caves. And indeed they will. You see, the day is coming when God will humble all of mankind left on the earth. Isaiah says in verse 11, The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. It reminds me of the elder statesman who told a freshman senator just elected to Congress. He looked out his Washington office window at the Potomac River, and he pointed to an old log floating by. And he said, Washington is like that log. There are probably 100,000 grubs and ants and bugs and critters on that old log as it floats down the river. And I imagine every one of them thinks he's steering it. But you know, that's probably true of every city. One day, all men and women will learn that none of us are the captain of our own ship that God calls the shots, that God is control, that He alone is Lord and Master. Isaiah chapter 3 describes the conditions that lead to the fall of Jerusalem. Verse 5 describes a breakdown of the family. It says, The children will be insolent toward their elder and the base toward the honorable. Verse 7 says that the able men will back down from leadership roles that fathers will refuse to take the reins in their own homes. Reminds me of the Englishman who visited the United States, and he remarked, what impressed me most about America was how the parents obeyed their children. 
Verse 9 indicts Jerusalem for the brazenness of their sin. It says they declared their sin as Sodom. You remember in Sodom, the sin of homosexuality was not only practiced, but it was given legitimate status. You know, it's one thing to sin in secret. It's worse to throw off all restraint, all shame, and seek to sanction your sin as an honorable and legitimate act. And God judged Sodom for her blatant sin. And I think that's what provoked Billy Graham to make the comment, if God does not judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom. Verse 12 also sounds like America today. It says, As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. In my opinion, the greatest social ill in America today is the void of male leadership in our society. Absentee fathers, deadbeat dads, promiscuous husbands, uninvolved men who leave the family to their wives. I believe this is tragic. The men of America need to rise up and be leaders in their homes and in their communities. They need, we need to lead our families in the ways and word of God. The rest of chapter 3 exposes the rich who plunder the poor. And it also indicts the vain lady who places appearance before character. At the end of the chapter, it says that God will humble the stuck-up woman. In verses 18 through 23, it's as if Isaiah has taken a lady's purse and has turned it upside down and is shaking out its contents. Jingling anklets, scarves, pendants, bracelets, perfume, rings, mirrors, headbands. He describes her jewelry and her finery and her perfumes. But then he says in verses 24 and 25, And so it shall be, instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty in the war. In other words, judgment will come. And the women who are spending so much time primping and pampering the external while neglecting the internal character of their heart, that when judgment comes, all of their outward beauty is going to be of no value whatsoever. It's all going to be erased. That's why Isaiah opens chapter 4. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man. In other words, war with Assyria will create a man shortage in Israel. And so one man will attract seven wives. Women will be that desperate to find a man. Remember, this is in response to the arrogance of the women in chapter 3. It's as if God is saying that if the women want to be in charge, then he'll kill off the husbands and sons so they can really be in charge. Husbands need to lead. They need to lovingly lead their wives, and wives need to submit and follow their husbands. Understand, chapters 2 through 5 constitute a single prophecy. These three chapters refer to the judgment that God will bring to pass in the latter days. 
In chapter 4, Isaiah refers to three events that will occur in the wake of that judgment. He talks about the branch. He talks about a remnant. And he talks about a restoration. The branch is Jesus. Verse 2 tells us, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Understand, David was the head of the royal family in Israel. And God promised him that an eternal king would rise from his lineage. That promised king came to be known as the branch or the offshoot of David's family tree. And of course, the genealogy of Jesus is traced back to David, proving that he was the branch. After the judgment of the great tribulation, Jesus will return to earth to establish his eternal kingdom. He'll reign and rule at that time over a remnant of believing Jews. And verse 2 refers to those Jews as those of Israel who have escaped. And a restoration will follow. Verse 5 tells us that God's glory will return to Israel in the form of the cloud by day, the fire by night, and God will again dwell with his people. You know, vineyards are a familiar sight in Israel. They dot the hillsides all over the country. And in the Old Testament, the vine was a symbol of the nation Israel. And in chapter 5, Isaiah plays off this image of the vineyard. Here is the song of the vineyard, as it's called. And here it is in a nutshell. God plants it. Sin ruins it. God lifts its protection and brings judgment upon it. Guys, this analogy is not only significant to Israel, but it also applies to those of us who are believers in Jesus. You remember John 15 says that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. We've become branches in Christ. If we abide in him, if we have faith and stay connected to him, he prunes us and he transforms us. We bear fruit. But Jesus says, if we don't have faith, if we don't stay connected, he'll cut us off. He'll take us away. We need to beware. Let's remain attached to the vine. Let's be a vineyard that bears much fruit for Jesus Christ. The rest of chapter 5 consists of six woes or warnings. God will judge man's sin, no doubt about it. Verse 8, he says, Woe to those who join house to house. Are these developers who produce crowded conditions and just chain the houses together, you know, where you've got no big backyard or anything, and you can shake hands from your side window to your neighbor's side window. Shame on those developers. Every man needs a good backyard, some grass to cut. Kids need a place to play. (laughs) Woe to those who join house to house. God will thin out the crowd for sure when judgment comes. Verse 11 says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. Woe to the party crowd who drink away their days and nights. Did you know that the only cells of your body that you cannot replace, that are not reproduced, are your brain cells? Did you know that? You are born with 17 billion brain cells. And every time you consume a large quantity of alcohol, 
you can kill off as many as 10,000 cells in one binge. This is one of the reasons I don't drink. I need all the brain cells I can keep. I don't have any to spare or lose. Be careful. Verse 18, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity. Here's a person mocking God. He's pulling his sin along with him, daring God to bring judgment. Verse 20, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 21, Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Verse 22, Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating wine. In other words, they get men drunk in order to bribe officials and pervert justice. God is angry with Israel over these matters. Again, J. Vernon McGee has a needed perspective for modern man. He writes, In the thinking of the world, God has been removed from the throne of judgment, divested of His authority, robbed of His regal prerogative. He has been towed to the edge of the world and pushed over as excess baggage. He is characterized as a toothless old man with long whiskers sitting on the edge of a fleecy cloud with a rainbow around his shoulders. He is simple, senile, and sentimental. He does not have enough courage or backbone to swat a fly or crush a grape. His place is in the corner by the fireplace where he can knit. This is the world's concept of God, but this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God who will judge the wicked. And that is why you need to take his offer this evening. You need to settle out of court. Don't go to court with God. You'll lose. That's why he says, come now and let's reason together. Though your sin be as scarlet, it shall be as white as snow. Though it be red like crimson, it shall be as wool. If you'll just believe in his payment, his sacrifice, his son, Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven. Verses 26 through 30 call up an army from far away to execute God's wrath. This army is swift and strong. Their arrows are sharp. They roar like young lions. They'll swallow up Israel as surely as the tide rolls in and deluges the beach. The immediate fulfillment of Isaiah's woes took the form of the Assyrian army. But these verses are also set in the context of the latter days. And I believe they also apply to the army of the Antichrist that will fight against modern Israel just before Jesus returns. Chapter 6 begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Hebrew tradition suggests that Isaiah was the younger cousin of the good and godly king Uzziah. It's possible that Uzziah was a mentor or a spiritual father to Isaiah, just as Paul was to Timothy, or perhaps Moses was to Joshua. The older Uzziah taught and guided and loved the younger Isaiah, but now Uzziah is gone. He's off the scene. Isaiah had lived his whole life in the shadow of King Uzziah. Now he finds himself on his own. You know, we all either have or will experience the same predicament. For some people, it occurs when they leave home and they get out from under the nurturing of godly parents. For other folks, it occurs when a friend or a spiritual mentor moves out of state. 
For still others, it takes place when they, when they have to move to a new location and they leave behind good fellowship and sound teaching and, you know, a family, a former church and a strong family in Christ. Suddenly they're on their own. They look around and where did Uzziah go? They're out there on their own. But if you're in that place tonight, God is teaching you an important lesson. Sometimes God has to get us on our own to teach us to dial Him direct, to teach us to go to Him personally, to no longer depend on a second-hand experience through someone we respect, but to go and embrace God and develop our own first-hand experience with Him. It's been said, when you have nothing left but God, then for the first time you become aware that God is enough. And that is exactly what Isaiah learns. In that year, the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah was given a glimpse of God's throne room. He saw the Lord in all His glory. Seraphim hovered around the throne, praising God for His holiness. You would think Isaiah would say, wow, to such a vision. But instead he said, woe. For up against God's glory, all he could focus on was his own sin and his own slackness. And that's when one of the angels took a coal from off the altar and brought it to the point of Isaiah's impurity and touched his lips with it. You know, it just singed them. It cauterized them and purified at that point of impurity. Suddenly, Isaiah was in a place. He was right with God. He was in a position where he could hear God speak. And he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Notice the use of the plural pronoun, us. Why? Because God is in us. He's one God, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Isaiah, though, when he heard this, this, this question, who will go for us? He volunteered immediately. Here am I, Lord. Send me. I hope we're as eager to be sent. I hope we're excited about the things that God has for us. Here am I, Lord. Send me. And of course, the Lord told him to go. God's word to us all is go. But before we go, there first comes a woe. Guys, we're not fit to be used by God until we are broken. And it takes a vision of God to strip away our pride, to deal with our selfishness. At the end of chapter 6, God gives Isaiah a message. He's been given good news to share. Actually, we've been given good news to share. Isaiah's message was not that good. We share the gospel, which means good news. But Isaiah had a tougher message. God told Isaiah that his persistent preaching would only serve to harden the hearts of the people, to actually make them immune to the warnings. Isaiah's ministry was not so much intended to deliver as much as to prepare Israel for an inevitable judgment. It was a tough ministry. After the judgment comes, he supplies them with hope. But prior to that, he basically hardens their hearts. Chapters 7 through 9 are wonderful chapters. And they have as their backdrop the most underrated story in all of the Old Testament. Now, if I were to ask you about the stories of the Old Testament, 
your favorite. Some of you would raise your hand and, oh, David and Goliath. That's my favorite story. All the kids learn David and Goliath. Daniel in the lion's den. That's another famous story. Moses at the burning bush. But few have heard of the story in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35. And yet that story is so important that God chose to record it three times in Scripture. In 2 Kings 19, in 2 Chronicles 32, and again we'll see it later in Isaiah 37. Here's the story. In 701 B.C., the Assyrian army had surrounded Jerusalem. After successful sieges against the Syrian capital of Damascus and the Israeli capital of Samaria, the Assyrians had set their sights on the Judean capital of Jerusalem. And at least 185,000 Assyrian troops were camped outside Zion's walls, posed to strike. Guys, an army of nearly 200,000 troops is about the size of the total population of the city of Columbus, Georgia. Now, Isaiah and King Hezekiah, they looked over the walls and they saw this incredible army camped to attack them, the city of Jerusalem. And they prayed for a miracle. They repented. They cried out to God for help. And the people went to bed that night on the brink of annihilation. The next morning, they couldn't believe it. They awoke to an incredible surprise. There's been no greater turnaround in the history of warfare. For in that night, in response to their prayers, the angel of the Lord had come and had slaughtered single-handedly 185,000 Assyrian troops. What an incredible story. But that's just the beginning of the story. For in chapters 7 through 9, Isaiah fills in the details and gives us the background to that story. Verse 1, it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail. Now he flashes back to a time when Judah was being attacked by two other kings, Syria and Israel. Ahaz was the king of Judah, and he was frightened. And God sent Isaiah to meet him with some important news. Isaiah finds him on the highway to the fuller's field. He's inspecting the, the city's aqueduct. He is basically preparing for a long siege. And there Isaiah tells Ahaz that these two invading kings are nothing to worry about. He calls them two stubs of smoking firebrands. In other words, you could say two cigarette butts. That's about how significant they are. They'll blow a lot of smoke, but they won't cause much flame. In verse 9, Isaiah predicts that within 65 years, the northern kingdom, are here called Ephraim, will be broken. The Assyrians will come and they will destroy the kings of Syria. They'll destroy the kings of Israel, the same two nations that are at that moment threatening Ahaz. And so he's saying, don't worry, Ahaz. God is going to take care of your enemies. Now, understand, Ahaz was an idolater. 
And he really didn't believe God's promise. In fact, later, he will use the gold and silver in the temple to try to buy the Assyrians' protection and get them to fight for him. But God wanted him to believe this promise. And so he told Ahaz to choose a sign. He says, any sign, you name it, make it so outlandish that it requires a miracle. Ahaz bought. He said, oh, you know, I'm not one in a position to tell you what to do, God. And so God selected a sign himself. And he says in verse 14, therefore, you know, here's your sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, what a sign. A virgin shall conceive. When the angel appears to Joseph in the New Testament to tell him that Mary has conceived a son through the Holy Spirit, this is the verse that he uses, Isaiah 7, verse 14, as an explanation for the miracle. I want us to understand tonight that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is not a peripheral doctrine. It is crucial to our faith. The genetics of salvation require a virgin birth. You see, sin passed down through Adam, through the father. And if a human father had sired our Lord Jesus, Jesus would have been born with sin himself. And his death on the cross could not have been substitutionary for us. He would have been dying for himself. For Jesus to die for you and me, it was necessary for him to be born sinless. And it was the virgin birth that enabled Jesus to be as human as his mother Mary, while at the same time as sinless and divine as his father God in heaven. Isaiah says in verse 15, in a continuation of this sign, he says, curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now, curds and honey were the equivalent of baby food. And so he's saying, before this miraculous child reaches adulthood, the Syrians and the Israelites who are knocking at your door, Ahaz, and giving you problems, they will no longer be a serious threat. Now, it was 730 years before the child prophesied here was actually born. But if Jesus had been born at that time, the time frame here would have still been valid. For a Hebrew child celebrates his bar mitzvah or his passage into adulthood at age 12. And in less than 12 years, the Assyrians did come and wipe out both Syria and Israel, the two nations that were threatening King Ahaz. Verses 18 and 19 tell us, The Lord will whistle for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will come. And it was the Assyrian army that turned Syria and Israel into a wasteland. It's interesting, Isaiah had two sons. And when you are the son of a prophet, beware. Because you are liable to get stuck with a terrible name, a prophetic name, a long, verbose name. 
Isaiah's older son was named Sheer Jashub, which means a remnant will return. Isaiah predicted judgment, but God always lives, leaves a remnant or a group left over in order to start over, to have a new beginning. In chapter 8, Isaiah had another son. And look at the name he gets. Maher Sha'alal Hashbaz. What do you call the kid? Boz, maybe? Or... I think I would have rather been the boy named Sue than Maher Shalal Hashbaz. His weird name means speed the plunder, swift to the spoils. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Makes Sandy. Sandy doesn't sound so bad after that, does it? Isaiah explains in verse 4. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. And his name stood for the haste with which God would judge the enemies of Judah. And verses 6 through 10, the Assyrian army is viewed as an overflowing river. We're in chapter 8 now. That swells its banks and it floods over, not only into Syria, not only into Israel, but it also floods over into Judah. And the people of Ahaz would have drowned in the Assyrian surf had it not been for this child, Emmanuel. Now remember, this was the name that appeared in chapter 7. The name of the child who was to be born of a virgin. And this is the name the angel gave Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And so notice, keep that in mind, and notice verse 8 of chapter 8. It says, The king of Assyria will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And then in verse 9, he warns this faraway country that they too will be broken in pieces. And the reason, he says, for God is with us. Now, this is where the plot thickens. This is where it all ties together. Who is Emmanuel? Well, according to the angel that appeared to Joseph, Jesus is Emmanuel. And yet it was Emmanuel who played a role in Judah's deliverance from the hands of the Assyrians. How did he do it? When did Emmanuel step up? and stop the Assyrians from flooding into the land. Remember, it was an angel of the Lord who came in the middle of the night and slew 185,000 Assyrians. The word angel means messenger. At times it refers to a cherubim, some angelic messenger, but not always. Sometimes it can refer to a human messenger. In fact, it can even at times refer to God as a messenger. There are examples in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord was none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And I believe that is exactly what happened here, that it was Jesus in a pre-incarnate form who came in the middle of the night and stopped the Assyrian threat and slew those 185,000 Assyrians and answered Isaiah and Hezekiah's prayer and stopped that army dead in their tracks. It was Jesus. It was our Lord Jesus. Now, that's why 
It must have boggled Joseph's mind when Mary's baby was identified as Emmanuel. Because he thought of Emmanuel as God's destroyer. Emmanuel was a mighty warrior able to take out a whole army of marauding Assyrians with a single blow. And yet Emmanuel is willing to humble himself, make himself vulnerable, enter through the, into the world through the lowest door. This great warrior is willing to become a baby. Think of it from Joseph's perspective. Joseph knowing the Old Testament. The Assyrians flooded the land until Emmanuel stepped up to stop them. In the remainder of chapter 8, Isaiah reaffirms his faith. He's bombarded on two sides, really. His enemies conspire against him, but in light of their threats, Isaiah is told to keep his eyes on God. Verse 13 puts it, let him be, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. In other words, when you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. In addition, there are wizards, there are mediums, we're told, that are questioning Isaiah's prophecies. They pretend to communicate with the dead. They offer a conflicting version of the future. But they need to be rejected. You know, I know it's difficult to lose a loved one. And when we lose a loved one, we would like to somehow keep that relationship alive. But understand, Scripture forbids, it prohibits any attempt to communicate with the dead. Seances, mediums, these are occult practices and they are forbidden by God because they are a door that will allow demons to enter in and hassle you and create problems. And mislead you. Beware of this. Verse 20 reveals Isaiah's reaction to these false prophecies of the mediums and the wizards. He says, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Guys, whenever you are exposed to an apparent revelation or to a seeming prophecy, go back to the testimony go back to the book judge it against scripture if it stacks up with the word of god great but if it doesn't it needs to be rejected that was isaiah's counsel to us chapter 9 holds one more mention of emmanuel it's interesting matthew chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 quote the first two verses of isaiah 9 as prophetic of the ministry of jesus Matthew, or Isaiah 9 says, As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Galilee, which was the territories of Zebulun and Naphtali, they sort of served as Judah's doormat. You see, when an invading army approached from the north, they came down through Naphtali and Zebulun, through Galilee. And so Galilee was always being sort of white dome. You know, it was the doormat before they got to Jerusalem and the Assyrians would, you know, 
practice, you know, on the villages in, in this particular area. And so they really kind of got the, the, you know, the brunt end of the stick. And to compensate these Gentile villages, God promised a special blessing. They were privileged to see a great light. And that's why Jesus made his home base the Galilee. And so much of his earthly ministry was conducted around the Sea of Galilee, up in the northern area there. And it was in recompense. It was a response to to this Old Testament prophecy. So many of Jesus' miracles were done in Galilee. Now, in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah mentions this great light by name in one of the most sweeping and revealing Messianic prophecies in all the Old Testament. Again, we find Emmanuel. He is the virgin born, he is the virgin born baby of chapter 7. Emmanuel is the mighty conqueror of chapter 8. But now in chapter 9, we have the fullest description yet. We're told, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Jesus was fully human. He was a newborn child, but he was also fully divine. God's greatest gift, his only son. He was a child born. He was a son given. Before Jesus was laid in the manger, he had sat upon the throne in heaven. Before he became the Bethlehem babe, he was Emmanuel, God's mighty warrior. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What a wonderful description. The virgin-born babe will eventually rule over God's kingdom for all eternity, Isaiah tells us. He says, For of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. Notice Jesus will sit on the throne of David. And that throne is a Jewish throne. God will restore his kingdom to the nation Israel. There are those who claim that God is through with the nation Israel. That the promises he made to the Jews have been now inherited by the church and that God is done with Israel, but not so, not for one moment. Jesus, in following the footsteps of David, is a Jewish king and he will reign over the nation Israel. God is not through with Israel. Israel's finest hour is yet to come. And we're told the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, one of my favorite bumper stickers reads, Denial is not just a river in Egypt. You ever seen that bumper sticker? And the last half of chapter 9 addresses the northern kingdom's state of denial. You see, Assyria's initial attack against Samaria shook the city. It dealt a critical blow. The king of Assyria replaced a vassal king by the name of Hoshea and put him in, in the place of the, the previous king. Israel should have accepted this as God's judgment. They should have repented. But instead, Hoshea sees it 
you know, as just maybe a minor setback. And he rebuilds the walls. He reloads for battle. He even plots to hire the Egyptians to come up and fight with them against the Assyrians. They refuse to admit that Assyria is God's tool of judgment. And in verse 14 of chapter 9, Isaiah tells them that their cause is hopeless. He says, the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel. Both the honorable, both the heretic, they both will die in battle. Only true repentance can avert God's wrath. And over and over in these next few verses, Isaiah sounds the refrain, for all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Reminds me of the pilot who radioed to the tower. Pilot to tower, pilot to tower. I'm 300 miles from land. 600 feet high. I'm running out of fuel. Please instruct. Over. The tower radioed back. Tower to pilot. Tower to pilot. Repeat after me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Guys, when you begin to see the handwriting on the wall, don't deny it. If God is trying to get you a message, accept it. Repent of your sin and ask God for mercy. God used Assyria to judge Syria. He used Assyria to judge Syria and Israel. But just because you're used by God doesn't mean you're exempt from God's judgment. And this is the lesson he teaches them next. You remember, God used a donkey. God can use anybody. And just because God might use you doesn't mean that he's pleased with everything you do. When you look at these guys on television, just because you see God using them on occasion, don't necessarily, you know, it doesn't mean that God's giving them a blanket endorsement. God can use anything. He is the jawbone of a jackass. So, I mean, you know, just because God uses you doesn't mean that, that he's approving of everything you do. And that's why he says in chapter 10, verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. In other words, he's been using Assyria to judge Syria, to judge Israel, to judge Judah, but that doesn't mean that Assyria won't be judged herself if she doesn't repent and follow the Lord. And in chapter 10, Isaiah describes God's judgment on the Assyrians. Now what happened to Assyria can also happen to us. It's amazing how success can inflate our heads. You see, Assyria assumed that her victories were the result of her own military might, and she figured that God's city, Jerusalem, would fall like all the other cities. But Assyria figured wrong. For in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 10, there we read, Therefore it shall come to pass... When the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, in other words, he failed to give God the glory. And that's why God will bring judgment upon him. Listen to verse 15. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Who are we to get proud and puffed up? We're just the axe in the lumberjack's hands. We're just the instrument, the tool. The glory belongs to the owner, the user of the tool, to God alone. Corey Ten Boom told the story of a woodpecker. 
who was pounding away at the tree when suddenly a lightning bolt fired out of the sky, hit the top of the tree and split the tree right down the middle. And the little bird went away bragging about its powerful beak. And that's what I think of people that walk around talking about how powerful a minister they are. Hey, you're not powerful at all. The power belongs to God. The glory belongs to God. Whatever you do, never touch the glory. Leave it with God. It belongs to Him. It's interesting how chapter 10 closes. Isaiah gives us a play-by-play account of the Assyrians' march toward Jerusalem. In verse 28, he mentions Aath, which is about 30 miles north. Then he mentions Michmash, which is seven and a half miles north of Israel. Then he mentions Geba, six miles, Anathoth, three miles, Gabim, a mile and a half. Now Jerusalem is in sight. The Assyrians are getting closer and closer. Verse 32 mentions Nob, another name from Mount Scopus, which was just north of the city's walls. The Assyrian army has marched all the way to Jerusalem. She's now ready to attack. Verse 32 captures the rage of the king of Assyria as he shakes his fist at Mount Zion. The situation for Jerusalem appears bleak. On top of that, you realize that chapter 11 comes next. Nobody likes chapter 11. Jerusalem's about to go bankrupt. She's going to turn to chapter 11? It's a joke. You see, it's a joke. You're supposed to laugh. But chapter 11 comes with a surprise. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And you remember who stopped the Assyrians? Emmanuel did. The branch from the family tree of Jesse and his son David, Jesus Christ. And in verse 2, we're given a description of the Holy Spirit that rested upon Jesus and empowered him. Here's the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit in the life of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in our lives as well. First of all, he says, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Notice first, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit will always testify of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will always work in ways that are in harmony with Jesus Christ. He is also, we're told, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Man, that's why I want the Holy Spirit to come upon me with power. That's why I need the Holy Spirit in my life. Because if there's anything I need, I need wisdom and understanding. Reminds me of the guy who kept hearing a ringing sound in his ears. He also had this problem with his eyes sort of bulging out of his head. They were real swollen. And he went to a doctor who suggested a tonsillectomy. It didn't work. And so he went to a second doctor who extracted a few teeth. Again, it didn't work. And so he went to a third doctor who told him that he had a rare disease. He only had three months to live. He might as well just go out and enjoy the time left because he was about to die. So that's what he did. He went out, he ran up a bunch of credit cards, and he purchased 
a lot of finery, a lot of luxuries. He went on a few vacations. He even decided to satisfy a long-time desire and purchase some tailored shirts. Never had a tailored shirt. He thought, before I die, I'm going to buy me a tailored shirt. But when the tailor called out the measurements, he said, 35 sleeve, 16 collar. And the guy argued, he said, that's wrong, man. I've always worn a 15 collar. And the tailor said, no way. I know my business. You're a, you're a 16 collar. He said, no, sir, I wear a 15 collar. Finally, the tailor said, man, I'm warning you. If you wear a 15 collar, you're going to hear it ringing in your ears and your eyes are going to bulge out. That was better, wasn't it? You know, we need all of the discernment and all of the wisdom that we can get. Sometimes things just slip right by us, and it's so neat to have the Holy Spirit to remind us, to awaken us, to open our eyes to, to truth. The Holy Spirit is also the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. God's Spirit, God's Word is really all we need, guys. The rest of chapter 11 looks beyond a serious destruction to Messiah's future kingdom. Verse 6 tells us, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. Verse 8, The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. In other words, Jesus, when he returns, will end the hostility that exists between humans and animals. Verse 9 says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. What a day. Notice we're told in verse 11, It shall come to pass that in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people who are left. Now remember, the first time was after Judah had been taken captive by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. They remained in Israel after they had been brought back from Babylon. They remained in Israel until around 70 A.D. when the Romans drove them out. But since 70 A.D., for the last 1,900 years, the Jews have lived dispersed among the nations. And it has not been until this last century that they began to return to their land a second time. Guys, we are seeing Isaiah's prophecy being fulfilled before our very eyes. In our day, God has begun a second time to assemble the outcasts of Israel, just as Isaiah predicted here in chapter 11, verse 12. Isaiah 12 is a song of praise. After God's judgment has been poured out, he will restore and comfort Israel. And God's people will thank him for his salvation. I hope you thank the Lord today and every day for your salvation. I love chapter 12, verse 5. Sing to the Lord. For he has done excellent things. Can you say that with me? Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. Father, we believe that. We have witnessed your work in our lives, and we thank you for the excellent, wonderful, marvelous things you've done. And we're so excited that those things aren't going to stop, that you're going to continue doing those works in our life as we walk in your love and with our Lord Jesus. We pray it in His name. Amen. And you're dismissed.